The following sermon was delivered on Sunday, February 9th, 2020, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Andover by the Reverend Callie Fire. The title of the sermon is For Love and Service. Here begins the sermon. Having no examples on which to model his ministry, Joseph Tuckerman walked the streets near the Boston docks, visiting people in their homes and talking with them about their circumstances, problems, and hopes. He called this friendly visiting. In the first two years of his ministry to the poor, before chapels were built to accommodate the throngs of poor people who flocked to him and his ministry, Tuckerman was a minister called to serve, not a congregation meeting in a physical building, but impoverished men and women, wherever they were, who needed his attention and care. These are the words of Jedediah Manis, who is the founder of the Outdoor Church in Cambridge. Who was Joseph Tuckerman? He is um, not a well-known ancestor of our Unitarian heritage. He was a Christian Unitarian, um, born in 1778, um, graduated Harvard Divinity in 1798. um, And in that time, Unitarianism was distinctly rooted in the Christian heritage, in the Christian theology. Um, And in fact, Unitarianism wasn't Um, a name yet. We weren't considered Unitarian. We were a uh, theological sect of non-Trinitarians within the congregational movement at that point. So he actually was a congregational minister first. Um, When he attended Harvard Divinity School, he he made very close, fast friends with William Ellery Channing, who would come to lead the Unitarian Association for a period of time and also was a roommate of Joseph Story, who would go on to be the Chief Justice of Massachusetts. Um, So very influential in his school career. Also came from a fairly middle upper class family. His father was a successful baker. Um, In school and uh, during his time getting to know Channing and all of that, he had a relatively unremarkable history in school, wasn't considered extremely outgoing or, or um, inventive or creative in terms of ministry. Regardless, he did um, graduate and was ordained and accepted a ministry in Chelsea, um, what is now Chelsea. It was uh, something Marsh prior to that, but I can't remember. Um, but it's in Chelsea. was not a highly prized ministry, But he led there for 25 years, rather unremarkable ministry. Again, he did not choose to excel himself, as many clergy do, and try to build up his skills and shoot for a a, a prominent or um, lucrative pulpit, or one that would give him a name or a position. Um, He served just consistently and plodded along in Chelsea, preaching two times every Sunday. But he was moved by the poverty in the community. It was a predominantly seafaring population in the community, and he was struck by the impact of, of wealth and, or lack of wealth, and also what influenced and made those circumstances for people. Uh, he would experience um, situations where 
families, mothers and, and children were left behind when sailing with uh, husbands who were sailors were out to sea. Um, and then often when they returned, they returned with, as he referred to, a predominance in, in, in temperance, um, in consumption of alcohol. And he saw this really more as the sin rather than poverty being considered a sin as it was mostly by society and the class structure that existed at the time. Eventually, he developed an, an incipient throat cancer, which made it more and more difficult for him to serve in the ministry as a congregational minister, being able to preach as so often was wearing on him and exhausting. So he did retire his pulpit. At uh, this time, he uh, was appointed by now um, Ellery Channing, William Ellery Channing, to move into a way of supporting the influx of poor coming into the city of Boston. So he was appointed minister at large to the poor of Boston, was his full title. So what has happened in this time that's created such an influx? Um, so between the 1820s and the 1830s, the commercial base in Boston shifts from shipping to industry. Industry and factories are now being located in the city. With this influx comes immigrants from Ireland and also children of rural farming families who are sent into the city to acquire some of these higher paying jobs than, than the struggle of farming and to bring that, that home into the families. So in that decade between the 1820s and 1830s, there is a 42% increase in population in 10 years. And almost all of these people, or this increase was resulting from poor immigrants. So now Boston has gone from a comfortable, relatively rural farming community to now a, a community that has, is a big city and has big city problems because of the vast amount of poor. As we heard earlier in um, Alex's reading, there is a very comfortable class structure where people who are owning the banks and own these factories and places of employment are comfortable in their situation and they're, you know, they're perpetuating this opportunity or these situations of um, poverty by the way that they are manipulating and, and um, exploiting these situations. Also, there is in this situation a predominant separation of poor and privileged people in the church environments, in the congregational communities. At this time, pews were being sold and rented for, as a form of income for the congregations. So if you're poor and you are struggling and you are trying to decide whether you're going to get clothes or food or pay the rent, you know, rent for a pew in a church or purchase of a pew in a church is not your priority. So, and often they, there were free pews offered for people who did not have the means to do so, but these were generally located in the center of the congregations. On the first floor where some of the um, elevated balcony seats were for the more affluent. So this only further to highlight the poverty by putting people right in the center where they could be seen and looked down upon by those who were probably their employers. 
So this was an, an aggravation for Tuckerman, and he felt that this, it, this just aggravated the separation of church and community, and it caused people who were in most need of the support of community to avoid it. They just simply didn't go. Either they, it was, again, similar to what we see now, Sunday morning was probably the only time they weren't working, and they wanted the downtime or the rest or time with their family, or they didn't want to be on display in the center of, of a church that felt that they weren't supported by. So Tuckerman saw very strongly his role as minister at large in a dual service situation. He was, of course, a ministry to the poor, and he gave this life. A biographer, later biographer of his, Mary Carpenter, writes, Dr. Tuckerman gave a life to this ministry which had never been infused into it before. So he saw its true aim and high importance, and by his deep interest, he felt in it himself. He called public attention to the necessity of such a mission. So we might therefore give him the high honor of being the originator of this institution. He was not the first to mission to the poor, but he saw it as a mission rather than as charitable outreach. The other part of, in addition to empowering Boston's most underprivileged, the other part of the duality of his ministry he saw was transforming the spiritual consciousness of Boston's most privileged residents. He approached this ministry as um, through, through education and direct service and felt that advocacy and that work and that relationship between the classes was more important than just charity alone. So he worked with the um, congregations and people in congregations about coming out into the community and working with the poor. And this was a charitable effort that had not been approached before. Typically, charity was collected and then handed out by a central location. But to actually go into the community and to sit and listen to stories and to meet people and understand the nature of their circumstances was his, um, his creation and his innovation. And it is still innovative today. Um, he is still considered the father of social work as we understand it today. And his, this approach has reached across into Europe and England as well. He did travel in his life and in seeing the models that happened in Europe and in England, especially he was especially horrified by workhouses in London that he saw. Um, and this was, an, again, a reason for him, despite his poor health, to um, reinvest himself in the community in Boston because he was concerned about this becoming an institutionalized situation here as well. Today, we can still see efforts or impacts of his ministry in the Unitarian Universalist urban ministries, which practice in um, Roxbury. And from their website, Joseph Tuckerman believed that a dedicated ministry could provide the education and skills that would enable people to overcome poverty and also allow the privilege to have a deepened understanding of poverty through personal involvement. Reverend Tuckerman is recognized as a pioneer in social work as well as a precursor to the social gospel movement. 
The UU Urban Ministry continues to embrace his philosophy of direct engagement and uniting communities. Excuse me. So they, again, they are located at the campus of the Unitarian Universalist um, Church in Roxbury. After closing their offices in Boston in 2003, um, they sold the downtown office and built a, an education and justice center at First Church. And this serves as the headquarters now for the urban ministry. And this center features two floors of classrooms, a full kitchen, a lounge, and office space for urban ministry employees. So what do they do there? So the urban ministry operates programs that provide education and enrichment to urban youth um, for programming for children and youth. There's an emergency shelter for individuals and families who are fleeing domestic violence, as well as job and education training for survivors of domestic violence. And they make use of an extensive pool of volunteers from Boston and area UU congregations colleges and universities um, to offer a programming that they can extends beyond what the staff would be able to provide on their own. And they hope that the influence of people from all walks of life working together will promote an environment of justice and equality. They also offer preaching and outreach. There is a minister who is the director of the um, Mary Catherine Morn, I believe is her name. Um, is the minister as who's the director of the, the charity or the organization. And um, there's also UU congregational involvement. Congregations can become members of the urban ministry, and at present there are 46 member congregations. So what could, what are ways that we or the congregation or us as individuals could be involved um, on an individual volunteer level. Um, they are looking for people to help with the Roxbury Youth Program, which is again is education and outreach to the Roxbury community youth and Boston youth. Um, Renewal House is the organization that supports victims of domestic violence, and they are looking for support and volunteers in that regard as well as the Believe in Success program, which is their education and training for people who have experienced domestic violence, for them to be able to get in situations where they can now support themselves and make their own decisions about their lives. There is also a Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministries garden. So if you would like to, if you like to garden and um, have time to go to Roxbury, there's a way that you can be involved in that too in the spring and, and summer months. Um, as a congregation, we could invite um, a, a guest preach or get, get, invite them to come and guest preach or lead a workshop for us or a conversation, perhaps on a weekend or an evening. They also often hold supply drives. So looking for, if they're looking for a particular um, amount of things that are in need, perhaps before the school year starts um, or in the winter, and that's something that we could look at too as, on a congregational level. So why does this matter? So this work that, um, that uh, Joseph Tuckerman does 
it gives us an opportunity to take a look at traditional liberation theology. So in, in lay terms, liberation theology is when we look at how marginalized or oppressed communities are able to get back on their feet. And in liberation theology, traditionally, it's understood that um, the oppressed take their own authority and take their freedom for themselves. They are empowered and, and therefore are able to rise up in that way. Or in, in Tuckerman's theory, is there a, tr a different way of looking at liberation theology? Is there a bound plight between oppressor and oppressed, between privileged and marginalized? Is there a way that liberation theology means we all need to be liberated, perhaps in different ways on either side of that tension? But so is this a conversation for us to look at? What is our, what is our role and what is our future and our plight in this? Um, are we tied and bound up in the liberation of others? Um, and what happens when the oppressed reject the assistance of the oppressors? We've seen this happen recently in other communities. Um, people of color push us back and say, no, wait, we've got this. So what happens? So this is another way for us to look at if we are, are hoping to um, scoop in and, and help and support, but that is not wanted. Now, now what is our role? And how do we look at this differently? How do we work together? as a community, as a resilient community, and, and how then do we support if it's not through direct action? What motivates and sustains our faith in action, our being out in the community and sharing together? Um, Reverend Tendeika, um, a UU minister, writes this in The Embodied Self. I believe that as we approach a new millennium, we need to identify categories within our Western philosophic and theological traditions that affirm interconnection rather than isolation as a basic source of meaning and moral agency in our lives. We need to find a way to affirm unity rather than fragmentation, community rather than disruption, compassion rather than aggression as the sacred site of our humanity. So we also heard in Alex's um, reading for us, and uh, earlier when I talked about the um, Christianity at the root of this, it's, this is not something that we align to as much anymore as our theology has deepened and widened to expand other viewpoints. So what does it mean for us to think about um, Reverend Tuckerman's Theology that was really more universalist than Unitarian, he saw this as a relational work and a relational ministry, which comes more out of a, a universalist viewpoint. So where do we find that for us that's relevant today in seeing others in, as a child of God? What does, how do we refer that? How do we reference that for ourselves today and see the humanity in others despite the suffering and the struggle that they go through, and understand that there are circumstances that present that for them. Um, 
withholding, withholding support and, and compassion for a single mother with many children who may be experiencing a loss of income because of a spouse who is absent or, um, or who has not had a spouse or whatever those circumstances might be, understanding what that is, walking you know, a mile in another's shoes, as we say. So these are all reasons that we can look at and ways we can look at this situation and look back at Joseph Tuckerman and for example and for inspiration in ways that we can also be creative in moving forward in relationship with others. Theologians, psychologists, and scientists are taking another look at human nature and the biological basis of, of and need for spirituality through the sight of mystical, affective experiences in the brain. In an era that poses dangers such as ours, these voices have never, been, never needed to be heard as they do now. With Unitarian Universalism also facing unresolved challenges in the 21st century, including defining and implementing a shared vision of social justice and community ministry within a denomination organized by congregational polity, Revisiting the dual missionary vision and dilemmas of Joseph Tuckerman seems a continuing worthwhile exercise. Can liberal Unitarian Universalists today reclaim their roots and find a theological language that allows us a successful tension to, maintain, to be maintained between the recognition of human suffering and evil and the possibility of hope and freedom from suffering and progress.